This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And the good news for the Liberal government, Prime Minister Trudeau's virtual meeting with President Joe Biden is coming up this afternoon. Everyone is expecting it will mark a return to more collegial and warm relations with the United States, despite some big policy differences. And on a tougher note, the House of Commons voted 266 to nothing to declare China's mistreatment of its Uyghur minority as a genocide. And this, as the Trudeau cabinet abstained, even though liberal backbenchers were allowed to vote in favor, the opposition then slammed the government as gutless. Uh, And in addition, there was a vote calling on the feds to lobby the International Olympic Committee to relocate the 2022 Beijing Games. That vote, 229 to 29 against, and most of those against were liberal backbenchers, including Olympian Adam Vancouverden. So many Canadians, and the polls show this, uh, think the government should stand up to the Chinese. Not that not standing up is doing us any good. What do you think? The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, And now I'm joined by Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Sousa, former Minister of Finance for Ontario and Liberal MPP, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. Hi, everyone. Yep, sure. Hi, everyone. Okay, I'm going to start with Karen. Different topic, and uh, uh, some York region moved out of lockdown. Toronto and Peel still there, but you have reopened Variety, correct? We have, we have. The government, um, and I give the government a lot of praise. They they passed a regulation to their yeah <laughs> to their to their uh, COVID framework reopening, which actually allowed facilities to open on a limited basis to serve people with disabilities. And uh, just quickly, I think it is a recognition that people with disabilities do need accommodation because they can't just go for a walk or go to the park. And so being able to open Variety Village on a limited basis for people who need us most uh, was really a great, Was it was just so great. We opened yesterday and the response from the community was overwhelmingly supportive. Uh-huh. And how many people were you able to see? Or uh, We had 15, 15 in the facility throughout the day. Wow, that's not very much. It's not very much, but for those 15, I can tell you they were really thrilled to be able to be back. Well, and I'm thrilled for you that you are able to operate. I I mean, we we get a sense from you just how difficult and frustrating it has been. Thank you. Okay, let's get down to politics, uh, starting with Charles Sousa. And uh, Charles, uh, uh, let's get to that Uyghur um, resolution. Is that going to hurt the government? Well, certainly the Conservatives want it to hurt uh, the Trudeau government. Um, This is all about diplomacy, and it is very sensitive. There's no denying that there's human rights uh, violations that seem to be, that are occurring, and it's been going on for some time. They've called for an investigation. I know the U.K. has tried to do some similar motions uh, to put more pressure on China. But the problem for Canada is it's in the midst of negotiating try to release the two Michaels. They're having discussions with the Biden administration and other world leaders to try to do a joint uh, pressure on China. But for all intents and purposes, we have a hostage diplomacy tactic by China with the Michaels. We have this indigenous issue from Canada's perspective that China accuses Canada of also violating human rights. In the meantime, these con- these confinements, these camps uh, where the Uyghur and others are, are stuck is a real challenge, and uh, Canada has now made it clear, at least without the cabinet, to declare it a, gen- a genocide, but there's more at stake here, and that is how to resolve these negotiations that are underway. 
Well, yeah, but we saw even what what was it last week when when Canada did this resolution with no teeth, uh, not mentioning China, saying, uh, "Oh, gee, you shouldn't take people as hostages," and the the government reacted. The Chinese government reacted with venom. Yeah, and that's their tactic, right? They they uh, they wield a lot more power than Canada in regards to trade and initiatives. They have been putting pressure on Canada to stay quiet, and we can't. But at the same time, we have to look at ways to foster that relationship. I mean, there's a small, there's a private member's bill that was also put forward uh, before uh, the legislature in regards to limiting uh, private companies, pension companies, and others to do trade with China. So that would limit some of our economic recovery there. But there's violations that are occurring. Everyone acknowledges that being so question becomes, how do we now resolve the, the issues that affect Canada, but at the same time uh, fighting for human rights? John, what kind of message do you think uh, that sent uh, that liberal backbenchers were allowed to vote in favor and, and Mark Garneau was there on behalf of the cabinet abstaining? It was, uh, it was something you don't ever see. No, and, and let me also start off by just also saying how happy I am for, for Karen and, and the Variety Village, the, the amazing work that they do. And, and I'm glad that even though it's, it's, a, it's a, a small number of people that might be able to return, but I think it's just good work that they're doing. So I'm happy for that and, and, uh, and glad to see that, that working out. So I just wanted to say that from the outset. But on the issue of, of China, and, and I do hear Charles uh, and agree with them that diplomacy is needed. But the challenge, I think, is is that we're not sure what kind of diplomacy this, this government has ever done or conducted with respect to China. There's never been any level of, of a plan or a set uh, framework by way of diplomacy. Because, you know what, being friends with China uh, and trying to be nice to them and hoping that they'll be nice, nice back to you or reciprocate that niceness is never going to happen, and it hasn't worked. So I do think there's got to be some level of a plan with respect to dealing with China, knowing that we've got our Michaels there. Without a doubt, that is something that is top of mind. But you just can't treat China with kid gloves or pretend to be friends and then they'll be friends back with you because it just, it's never worked. But I do think there's a bit of disingenuousness with this liberal government and, and the prime minister to sort of have a free vote on, on the issue of, of um, deeming uh, you know, China uh, this genocide. Uh, that that we saw with, I think you mentioned, 266 to zero votes. So he allowed for a free vote of his caucus members, <clears throat> which they clearly agree with the conservatives on this and, and naming it a genocide. But yet he, he refrained himself and his cabinet from doing that so that he can hold back and say, well, you know, we aren't really sure what we're going to name it. It's just so disingenuous. And it's not the kind of diplomacy that, quite frankly, works with any foreign uh, power, let alone China. So I do think that there's a mixed message there that is going to continually hurt this prime minister. And, and quite frankly, I think it's going to work in Arnold Tool's favor. He has been strong on China from the very beginning. Uh, as we mentioned before, you know, Aaron has been strong on China when he was running for leadership of, of the conservatives. And when he became leader and since then has been always putting the liberals and the prime minister's feet to the fire, so to speak, when it comes to dealing with China a bit more harshly. Because something has to happen. And, and doing this kind of stuff that he's doing now where, yes, a free vote, so he could say that, you know, it, quietly the liberals have, have endorsed this, but yet refraining cabinet from doing it, it's just disingenuous. Um, yeah, Karen, I mean, it's hard for him to have it both ways. And there 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 are other things happening that, frankly, are, are pretty mystifying. Last week, we learned that Canadian universities are working with Huawei. This, despite other governments saying, hey, it's dangerous, they're going to get your information, they're going to get your secrets, and universities are, are collaborating with them. And we have yet to make a decision on whether to allow Huawei to develop our 5G networks. And when there are allies who've said, hey, we're not going to share intelligence with you if you do that. Oh, yes. Oh, it's just, it, you know, there's a remark that was a po supposedly attributed to Napoleon. I don't know if this is true or not, but apparently he said, let China sleep. For when she wakes, the world will tremble. And that's what's happening now, that nobody knows how to deal with China. And we know that there is a concern. China, it has been demonstrated that they are committing genocide, that they are invading our networks, that they are sabotaging um, our intelligence, that they have amassed enormous power, and they've done it extremely strategically. And to John's point, they don't take friends. <laughs> they only have enemies. 
and an enemy is anyone who defies them. And we've seen it happen. They've given money to the developing nations in Africa and then secured their vote in the UN. They now have a vaccine distribution that, um, again, because the COVAX distribution vaccine is not getting out fast enough, now China is involved in that. So China is playing a game that we are not even in on. And we are the reciprocants. Like we're, we are the, we are basically China's the cat and we're the cat toy and they're just kicking us around. And so to John's point, we need to play a different game. And we cannot, there is no diplomacy with China because it, it just hasn't worked. It's never worked. It's never worked to our advantage. And so, and to your point, Libby, like to have universities take money when they already know that they shouldn't do it because it's not in our national interest is just demonstrating that we don't understand the game that we need to play. Charles, uh, you know, there's speculation that it, 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 it's not just a matter of a, a lack of political will or a will to negotiate that, that Trudeau probably harbors, you know, some uh, kind of old line feelings, good feelings for, for China, you know, that date back to Norman Bethune and the revolution. I mean, do you think he's got to change his tune on this? Is he going to suffer political damage because of this? Well, I think he realizes that he is. And so do the conservatives. And that's why they're pressing this as they are, uh, because for them, it's a wedge issue. And everybody in Canada recognizes that we are being subjugated to um, the hard line by China, and we have to do better to fight back. question is, how do you fight back effectively? And the timing of this motion in the midst of him negotiating, or at least his team, with the U.S. administration and with the other world leaders to try to force China to be more transparent, which is likely going to just create um, uh, a press against other world leaders, not just Canada. And I think that's what he's trying to do, is trying to foster a way to provide as great or as much effort against China in a unified front with other world leaders. But he also, and we also have to be concerned about this hostage issue that is existing with our own people in China. Um, so I agree with everything that's been said. We have to take a harder line, but we need to take a hard line that is in concert with some of the other countries to ensure that China listens in a more effective way. Okay, let's turn now to uh, the meeting this afternoon between Justin Trudeau and Joe Biden, where I'm sure the hostages will come up. Uh, John, uh, what are you... What- what are you hoping for from that? I mean, it's it's probably all been decided so far. They're going to come up with some kind of framework. It's probably already written. Yeah, and I think too, and just and just in response to, to Charles's point, uh, with, Libby, with respect to the, to the, you know, how, what what kind of harshness or what kind of uh, you know diplomacy or whatever can we use with China? I think the key thing, and this speaks to the actual question you just asked with respect to the meeting coming up with the Prime Minister and, and President Biden. Which is which is one of the things that we could do is get our allies to help us, and and I think that we've kind of refrained from that. And one of the topics that should be discussed with the president today, and 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 some closeness meetings, is how the U.S. can help now that there's a different administration than there was previously, which of course was just so antagonistic with China. So that's one topic. But the other one too is economic sanctions and and hurting things like Huawei and and producing our own products here as opposed to having them produced in China. So those are two ways that we can be effective with with China. But I think both those can be topics with respect to the upcoming uh, summit that we're going to, like later on today, that we're going we're gonna to be hearing about with, re- with respect to the Prime Minister and, and President Biden. But I also want to acknowledge that I think it's a great sign for U.S.-Canadian relations that the first, you know, virtual, it would have been a, it would have been a face-to-face meeting had it not been for COVID, but a first, the first virtual meeting uh, of sorts is with Canada, I think s- says a lot to the relationship, says a lot to um, what, what the President uh, what President Biden wants to do by way of reestablishing some links with with our our allies uh, in a different way than what President Trump did, which was much more antagonistic. So I think from that perspective, it's a positive sign, and I'm glad that the Prime Minister was able to get this locked down. I think it shows a lot not only for us, but for the U.S., and, and give some confidences to our businesses, hoping that they can talk about this Buy American uh, rant that, that the president is on and has been on, you know, even even his previous administration was on a Buy America or America First kind of policy. So I think the first thing that the prime minister is going to have to do is kind of relay his concerns to the president with respect to what does Buy American mean and how does it affect Canadian manufacturers with respect to our our exports to the U.S.? Because that could have a huge amount of, 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 of challenges. The other thing, too, is the new NAFTA. 
the USMCA uh, agreement and how that was played out. Remember, the, the Democrats were very loath to sort of do something or to change things. And once it happened, they were very much against some of the some of the uh, clauses and, and parts of, of the USMCA. So it's going to be interesting to see what kind of discussion, if any, they will have with respect to that. I guess it would be all tied into the Buy American side of it. But first off, I'm glad that we're having the call. I think it's good for, for U.S.-Canada relations. But there's a lot that the prime minister has to put pressure on on President Biden, and the question is, will we have the uh, will we have the uh, the ability and and the power, quite frankly, to push back on those issues? Uh, Karen, I mean, uh, having the first uh, what's usually a face to face, I mean, that's that's just the tradition. I mean, it's it's nothing new or groundbreaking. That's usually what's done. I can't remember if I don't think Donald Trump did it, but that was the only time. Yeah. Uh, I, I- Sorry. And uh, uh, again, the Buy American, I mean, my understanding is that Canada will just try to get some kind of exemption, exception mm-hmm. to that. Yeah, I do. I think that this is more just, um, you know, acknowledging the tradition of meeting with Canada. But I, I mean, I do think it's positive because Donald Trump stepped on a number of traditions and uh, crushed them. So I think the fact that <laughs> Biden is willing to acknowledge that this tradition is one worth resurrecting and preserving, I think does look favorably on our relations moving forward. But I also think he really, um, you know, I think there was a sense for, for Canada that needed to happen as well, because first out of the gate, he cancels the pipeline. You know, next out of the gate, he's saying none of the vaccines from Kalamazoo, Michigan, that are really, you know, 100 kilometers, not 100, but, you know, not that far from our border can't actually get shipped to Canada. And so, you know, really, we did need this meeting to say, look, are we, you know, are we going to be partners in this? Because, you know, aside from the vaccine, aside from the, the pipeline, which were no surprises, we have big issues that we need to work collaboratively on. And are, is there a willingness to do that? So I, I do think it's positive. And, uh, you know, normally it would just be par for the course. But, you know, given the past four years, I don't think we should take anything for granted. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I want to bring up the vaccine rollout. And I saw a piece of, of commentary that uh, I agree with, even though it's it's not necessarily that flattering to us. And it basically said that when we as Canadians looked over at the U.S. and just saw the vast amount of death, and, and they marked a horrible milestone yesterday, 500,000 people dead, that we were willing to accept uh, certain things from our government, like uh, the terrible vaccine rollout. But now that the United States is doing better and they're getting a lot of their population and, frankly, some of ours vaccinated, that Canadians are no longer willing to accept this or forgive it. Charles, do you have a view on that? Well, I mean, the U.S. has suffered a lot. So has Canada most recently with the, with the poor rollout of vaccines. But now we've secured vaccines that are necessary for our recovery as well. Um, so in terms of the timing, it was very unfortunate that we didn't get what we had deserved or at least had negotiated, but we're getting it now. So the issue is not just one of the vaccines. There are other disputes that are been longstanding with the U.S., you know, with softwood lumber. We're the largest trading partner with the U.S., and so it's absolutely necessary and appropriate that we are the first to have a meeting with Biden's team and the key ministers that are behind the prime minister in these negotiations are very telling as to what areas they're going to be concentrating on, be it the economic recovery or climate change uh, or the foreign policy issues in regards to this notion of diplomacy. But we have some critical issues that have to be resolved. Vaccines are certainly one of them, and we've learned lessons from that, and that is to start having our own vaccine manufacturing here. But what's going to happen with the steel and aluminum and auto sector and other issues of, of great concern for continuing trade with the United States, that has to be defined today. But the whole COVAX and the vaccines that are going to be made globally, that's also on the topic of discussion. So it's not just between Canada and the U.S. How are they going to secure vaccines globally for the benefit of Canada long term? That's part of the discussion today as well. Well, um, and and John, I mean, the what do you think about the political damage from this vaccine rollout? Again, I think it's worse when we're looking over next door and seeing how much better the United States is doing on that front. Uh, we, of course, had a lot fewer per capita casualties, though more in our long-term care. And um, I mean, it, it just seems sometimes you look like, 
Why couldn't we get this done? And even now, you know, what the prime minister is saying in terms of a rollout, the numbers of people who will have to be vaccinated is uh, per day is staggering. And um, I've seen actually estimates that said that because of this, our economic recovery uh, is going to be delayed by six months behind similar countries. Yeah, the political fallout for, for the vaccine and, and how it's going to be judged by, by Canadians by, by virtue of how many jabs and arms and, and how, how quick we can get everybody vaccinated is, is actually quite intense, the political fallout. And I think that it could actually ruin uh, political careers. I think it could cause a huge amount of problem for the prime minister if he wants to go to an election in, in May or June. Uh, and, and also provincially, quite frankly, for all of the provincial premiers. I think it holds a huge amount of, of sway because it is the one thing that gave Canadians hope back in December. And, and as we were getting out of the, out of the worst you know, year ever, 2020, people were hoping and, 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 you know, quite frankly, relying on the governments to get them the vaccine so that by some you know, part of this year, be it summer or fall, there'd be some level of new normal. So I think if that goes sideways or continues to go sideways, it's going to hurt a lot of people. And I think a lot of folks are rightly looking at the prime minister because there's been such a mixed message and a mixed new communication from his government and from his ministers for the last number of months with respect to how many doses and when we're going to get it and, and what the herd immunity is going to be and all that kind of stuff. I think now uh, the prime minister has, has been able to secure some, some uh, commitment to Pfizer and others and AstraZeneca now is, I think is on the verge of, of coming together. So I think what will happen is if this rollout is, is now, you know, if these vaccines come in and the province are able to roll them out in, in a proper fashion because they learned their lesson from the first rollout and this sort of goes smoothly I think it'll bode well for the prime minister, obviously, and certainly for the premiers, because I think Canadians will give a pass and say, okay, you know what, it might have been fumbled up in the last, you know, for the first, for the first couple of months of the new year. Uh, but if things are sort of going better and everybody sort of sees that the jabs are, are going into arms, uh, I think maybe that, that'll, people will forget that part and will focus on the positive and, and the fact that people are getting vaccinated and that will cause good news for, for people. So the political fallout is, is quite important on, on, on with respect to how vaccines are, are being disseminated over the next little while. Uh, Karen, uh, do you agree that people will forget? I mean, the, I hate to be cynical, but uh, yeah. it's some aspects of the rollout, I look at it and think, OK, it's just set up so that every different level of government can blame and point the finger at the other. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's a, we're actually heading into what I see as a dangerous situation. And, uh, you know, public health will say it's a dangerous situation because we have the variant. Um, I think it's a dangerous situation because we're going to, Canadians are going to start to look to Britain and the U.S. where they had the absolute worst response to COVID and they're going to be fully open in June. Boris Johnson has come out and said, you know, here's the path that we see for reopening if the vaccine distribution continues and um, the, the positivity rate goes down and herd immunity goes up. So Canadians are going to be the risk is that public health will continue to point the finger at Canadians saying you need to stay at home. Meanwhile, Canadians are looking around the world and saying, well, why are we stuck in our homes? Everyone else is out. The reason I'm stuck in my home is because I've done my part, but you haven't done yours, government. And well, government, to John's point, government is one broad brush. So I don't think any anybody's safe in this political context where Canadians still feel like we're doing what we were being asked to do, yet the government's not doing what they're being asked to do, and we're looking around the world and our economy is suffering and people are dying and we're still stuck at home. Well, so I think that's a real risk. Well, Karen, I, I, have, to, I, I have an answer for you if you're, you're invoking Britain. Uh, and Britain, the last time I looked, which was yesterday afternoon, was number three in vaccine rollout, and Canada was number 44. Yeah, and, that's a dangerous um, and to be. <laughs> if if I read you the names of some of the countries that are ahead of us, uh, you know, I, I have to say that that for me uh, personally, it's 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 almost not a political thing; it's an existential thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really uh, this is not who I thought we were. No, and you, we cannot claim any leadership on this issue at all. Unfortunately, we just can't because. Again, the world is moving ahead of the world is moving ahead of us. The world is moving ahead of us, and we're still being told to stay at home. And it's just uh, fundamentally, existentially, it is going to be very, very difficult for anybody to to be okay with this in the next. I'm going to say, you know, they've they've got a two month runway. If something really serious doesn't happen to to be able to regain the confidence of Canadians, it could be a very bad outcome. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, exactly. I mean, six months behind other Western countries, uh, Charles Sousa, I mean, you were, you were a finance minister. What is that going to do to us, if that's true? Yeah, you know, I think, I, I, actually, I don't, I don't agree with John on this one. I think people will remember, because they won't be satisfied until they're back to normal. And until then, there'll be a lot of blame to go around, as Karen had mentioned, and it starts with the with the leadership of the federal government and the procuring and securing the supply, and then we got to get the provinces to coordinate to ensure that everyone that is delivered and administered properly. But this is all about trust, and if the people are finding themselves losing trust in some of these leaders who are saying one thing and then it doesn't happen, like it's almost as though they're over promising and under delivering, and that is the that is the worst thing any politician can do, and they'll be held accountable as a result, even if things start to improve, but they'll never regain trust. And that's the hardest part. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a really good point, Charles. And we have to start uh, wrapping up that, uh, that you know, usually politicians, uh, their idea is to under-promise and over-deliver. And here we have all kinds of promises. And, and in the next segment, I'm going to be talking to some doctors because, among other things, last week, General Rick Hillier said the doctors will start calling people over 80 next week. Well, the doctors know nothing about this. So uh, at least that's uh, uh, since I was in touch with, with them yesterday afternoon. So maybe something's got better since then. But but I, I think that you've got it, that this really it has that uh, equation turned over, you know, over promise and under deliver not does not bode well. Um, so we're wrapping things up. I'm going to give each of you just 20 seconds, Karen. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think there is still hope to think that Britain, after all that it had gone through, is actually thinking about opening up with no restrictions that, you know, in June, if that's actually an achievable goal, I think does give us hope. I think the vaccines are showing to be promising and effective against the variant is something to hope for. And so I still remain hopeful. John? I'm, I'm glad that the, the Premier has opened up the, the various regions. I think he's being very cautious about which ones, and he's looking quite quite closely to see to make sure that that once he opens them up, that the numbers continue to stay flat and or lowered. So I'm just hoping that that it continues that trend, that the regions are opened up and that everybody's still playing safe and being being good so the numbers stay low so that Toronto can open up at some point soon. <laughs> and Charles? Well, I'm encouraged by uh, this partnership roadmap that's being rolled out between the Biden administration and Canada. But I am cautious. I mean, we have an economic recovery. We've got climate change. We've got to redefine ourselves on the global stage, all of which is being dealt with today. But I am concerned about some of the issues in regards to the Keystone Pipeline and the Buy America strategy. And I just uh, just warn our leaders to be cautious as they go forward, because while Trump was very clear and loud, nothing's worse than those that are silent and deadly. All righty. A good note to wrap up on. Thank you so much, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Thanks, Libby. Take care. Okay. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. And then, as I was saying, we are going to be talking to some family docs about their role in the vaccine rollout and what, if anything, they have been briefed about it. And we'll also take your calls when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And now to the vaccine rollout. And there seems to be more confusion than ever after a bit of good news. Over a week ago, we heard that people over 80 living in the community have been added to the top priority list for vaccination. But beyond promises, there's no clarity on how they will actually get appointments for their shots. Yesterday, we learned that each of the province's 34 public health units has to come up with their own plan. And this after we learned that the province is working on an online portal and a call center. And here's what General Rick Hillier said last week. We worked through with each of the public health units, all 34 of them, 
And that's the way we're going to roll out the vaccination program across Ontario through the 34 public health units. And they will work in collaboration with the hospitals in their area. They've built that collaboration. They will work with the primary caregivers, the family doctors in their region of, of responsibility, perhaps using those family doctors and primary caregivers to come together in one setting and to put in a mini mass vaccination sites and have their patients come to that and others and be able to do it in that efficient ma manner. And they will work with pharmacies in their area of responsibility with whom we are now in, in discussions and planning on how we will roll out the vaccines through those pharmacies itself. Well, uh, the phone lines at some of those doctor's offices have been ringing off the hook, and it would have been reasonable to think that there's been some communication with the doctors about what their role will be, but uh, we are waiting for that. I'd like to hear from you. You can call us here. Don't call your doctor's office just yet, though. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. And now I'd like to bring in Dr. Samantha Hill, president of the Ontario Medical Association, Dr. Anna Holland at the Prince Edward Medical a clinic, and Dr. Robert Kingstone, who is with Forest Hill Family Health here in Toronto. And full disclosure, he is my doctor, and I believe he himself is over 80. Hi, everyone. Hello. Thanks Hello. for having Hello. us on here. Okay, I'm going to start with Dr. Kingstone. So, uh, when Not we... much over 80. Pardon? Not, Not much. much over 80. Okay, well, you, you're, you're still at the, the head of the line, allegedly, to get, to get a shot in your arm. Or I've have you had, had one? Because um, being a member of the hospital staff, Humber River Hospital, and looking after patients, uh, they, the Humber River uh, vaccinated all employees, from cleaners and electricians to nurses to doctors, so I've had my Pfizer two shots. Oh, okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, Dr. Kingstone. Uh, but uh, how many uh, patients over 80 approximately do you have, and, and uh, what have you been hearing from them? I get many phone calls. I've already had two today, so that's two or three every single day. When am I going to get my shot, and how am I going to know about it? And will you call me? And I have no information to give them as to that level of, of, of um, knowledge that I have about the shot. I just don't know the actual um, processes at that level of actually calling the patient and getting them into either my office or somewhere and giving them direction. No, no information whatsoever. Uh, and again, approximately how many patients over 80 in your practice, in the whole clinic? In my, I'm with seven other family doctors, and we must have well over fourteen, fifteen thousand patients in our in our practice area. How many over eighty? I would guess easily fifty percent. Wow. So, uh, you know, I know uh, that uh, you're a, a busy practice, and and I'm going to put this over to Dr. Holland as well. And it can be hard to get through, you know, in, in normal times. I mean, is that something that your office can handle calling or uh, communicating with, with all those patients? Dr. Kingstone? Oh, I thought you were going to go to Dr. Holland. Okay. Well, we'll um, just answer this and then we will. I think there's going to be uh, difficulty getting through to everybody. Uh, we will try to, uh, our patients have access to our website. We will put something on there, of course. Uh, we will try to uh, use whatever communication um, availability we have. But um, I'm hoping that there will be um, um, edicts and uh, informational um, material brought forth either on the internet or the newspaper or the radio so that patients will know what to do. Because really, the center for all of this rests with the local public health people. Dr. Holland, uh, what about you? What's been happening in your practice since, uh, since Rick Hillier said uh, family, family doctors will be contacting their patients this week? Yeah, so thank you so much for having me um, this afternoon. I I would say, you know, family doctors are busy managing acute and chronic medical conditions, as well as fielding questions about the vaccination. Unfortunately, we don't have any information to supply. We heard about the the 80-plus uh, community uh, patients being vaccinated at the same time that everyone else did. 
Um, and so there has been a big concern about uh, patients calling and, and asking, and, and that makes complete sense why patients would call and ask, and so I want to be clear on that. Um, and I think what I would like to say is please do not call your family physician at this time. We don't have any additional information. I would like to echo what uh, Dr. Kingstone was saying about family physicians being extremely resourceful with communication, so websites, social media, all different uh, modes of communication. And, um, and yeah, we're looking for information and support. Uh, and uh, again, um, Dr. Holland, uh, approximately how many patients do you have in that age group? And, and if, if it was incumbent on you to communicate with them and say, be calling them. And I have to point out that in Britain, the National Health Service called every person over 80. And we know people who got those calls. Um, uh, would you be able to handle that? Yeah, so we, um, at the clinic where I work, we have, similar to Dr. Kingstone, we have uh, eight uh, physicians and we have over 10,000 patients that we serve. Um, I would say that in terms of number of patients over 80, uh, we haven't run the exact numbers, but definitely hundreds. Um, At this point, we haven't been given any information about how those patients should be contacted. And I think it goes without saying uh, family doctors are working extremely hard to look after acute and chronic medical conditions and fielding these questions. We are eager to help and we are perfectly positioned. We know which patients can come to the office to be vaccinated, which patients we would have to go to their home. Again, we have no information about how uh, these patients will be vaccinated as Dr. Kingstone said, will it be at a central location? Will it be in our offices? Will there be mobile teams? Um, and family physicians are able to do that. But what we do need is we need information in advance so we can plan and also support for our offices that are already busy and our staff have been working extremely hard throughout the pandemic. Uh, Dr. Hill, um, uh, what have you been hearing from your members? <laughs> Thanks so much. So I've been hearing a lot of what you've just said. The idea of family doctors being involved and being able to reach out to their patients, of course, makes perfect sense. And while I'm not a family doctor, what I've heard with family doctors is that they're not only willing, but they're eager to be part of the solution. But, and here's the big but, any solution, any movement forward requires good communication. And that's what we've struggled with throughout the entire pandemic. The idea that we all need to be talking to each other clearly and having the same message as we go forward, because when we don't, it really confuses the general public who are just trying to figure out what to do to stay safe, how to get their vaccines, and what tomorrow looks like. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, even... Uh, we here are get an awful lot of emails from people who are over 80, some of whom feel like they're essentially prisoners in their homes because they are most vulnerable. They understand that. And uh, they just, they just want to know. And, um, uh, you know, again, you know, when I heard General Hillier say that, I thought maybe he uh, actually had communicated with, with people because, again, I mean, I was shocked when I heard National Health Service contacted every person over 80 in Britain. But, but doctor's offices, they don't have, uh, Dr. Kingstone, you don't have the staff to do that. No, I don't. So I think it's important to remember that um, when the province announced that last week, the physicians in the OMA were obviously unaware of the announcement before it occurred, and as has been said very clearly, didn't have any further details. But the idea that those calls will need to be made at some point, I mean, that is where the Ontario Medical Association can help support physicians. That is where these conversations have to take place, because if those patients need to be called, physicians, you know... Do they have it, the power to do it? Is it easy? No. But, I mean, and Dr. Holland, and I'm sorry, I missed the last name of your physician. Dr. Kingstone. Dr. Kingstone, thank you. They will speak much more clearly than I do as to the capacity and the, um, the problem solving that goes into family medicine every single day, right? It's always about juggling insufficient resources to try and take care of patients who need their help. 
And they do a remarkable job every single day. That's why Ontario has such good health care is because of the job that physicians are doing. And so, you know, is it going to be easy? Do we have the resources easily available? Of course not. You know, pandemics are hopefully a once in a lifetime thing and not a recurring event. But if it needs to happen, then with clear communication, we'll find a way to make it happen. Well, yeah, I'm just thinking, you know, who's going to make the calls? People, you know, clinics have receptionists, uh, and, and, you know, I can see them. They, you know, they, they work really hard again at the best of times. They don't take a break. They're constantly, um, juggling a lot of calls and, and to, to take an extra measure of them. It's, it's hard to imagine. And, uh, the other thing, Dr. Holland, that, that worries me. I mean, we just saw, how good the government call center was when it comes to having people have to make a phone reservation through the government for those quarantine hotels. Uh, people are talking about being on the phone for hours and hours and hours. And, and is that what we can expect? Yeah, I think what I, I would definitely like to echo what Dr. Hill said about communication and having a cohesive and well-communicated plan I would say, I would like to say, you know, family doctors have been working hard throughout the pandemic and still are. There's a lot of variability in family doctors' offices, as you pointed out, uh, Libby. So there are um, administrative, a different administrative uh, capacity. Um, There are offices that are small with physicians and administrative support. And, And then there are those that have larger teams um, available and, and, you know, that's, that's something that they can leverage is having these bigger teams. But not, not all family doctors have that. And I think it's, it's really important uh, when you are involving physicians, it would be great to really ask, how can we help you? How can we make this as efficient as possible and support you to do this job? It's an important job. And as you pointed out, in the UK, they were contacting 80-plus patients. I would love to have the, the possibility to do that. Currently, with the staff support we have available, we wouldn't be able to do that, I think. And I, I, we do need the support and we need the information in order to do that. Certainly, uh, uh, information being landed on our laps at the same time as it goes out um, in the media is problematic. As, as we said, patients calling our office asking about vaccination and not having any information to provide. So it's frustrating. It's really okay. frustrating. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Cameron in Scarborough. Hi, Cameron. Hi, Libby. How are you? Fine. How are you? Go ahead. Fine. Thank you. Um, I just came from my mother. She's in her own apartment in Scarborough. She's 98 years wow. old. Um, she's been held up under quarantine now for over a year. And I was wondering, how would I find out when <laughs> when, and how she's going to get her vaccine? Uh, that's what we are all trying to, to find out. I mean, she's on the priority list. Uh, and um, according to the general, people in the community over 80 are going to get vaccinated uh, in a couple of weeks. But uh, he said doctors would be able to get in touch with them. We're trying to figure that out. Is she anxious? Yes. And I phoned her family doctor this morning and the receptionist said they have no idea or no involvement and they don't know how to help. Well, exactly. Um, so what we see here is uh, yet another, I think, failure of communication, failure of something on the part of the guy who is in charge by invoking family doctors without giving them any information. Uh, Cameron, all I can say to you is uh, stay tuned to, to us because as, as soon as anybody has the information, we'll have it. But right now, nobody has it. Okay, Libby, thank you very much for taking my call. Okay, Cameron, thanks. Well, uh, that is exactly uh, a case in point. Dr. Hill, um, I know you have to go soon, so why don't you uh, tell us what, what are your next steps with this? Absolutely. So I just want to flag that is exactly the problem or exactly the challenge. You know, that information went out, that message went out in a premature fashion. Let's say it was probably uh, positively intended, but it was premature. And then there were all these phone calls to family doctor's lines. And now it's not a problem about getting phone calls to family doctor's lines. The problem, and I think Dr. Holland and Dr. Kingston would agree, is that 
those phone calls tie up the lines for other people. And if we have nothing to add, if we have nothing to share, then it just becomes a repetitive, I'm sorry, we can't help you yet, which interferes with the people who are trying to reach their family doctors about chest pain or viral illnesses or something else that needs to be dealt with in a more acute fashion. And so the OMA has repeatedly emphasized to the government that doctors have a key role to play um, in the vaccine rollout. They know their patients best. They can prioritize, they can advise their patients, and potentially may have a role to play in gaining consent and even administering the vaccine. But the big problem here this weekend was that the messaging that went out to the public doesn't match the messaging that went out to physicians. And it put physicians in a position where as much as we want to help and as much as we are committed to helping and to the well-being of our patients, we simply didn't have the information to share. And so I'm hoping and working on making sure that as we move forward, information is shared clearly, hopefully with the primary stakeholders like physicians, et cetera, before the public, and that as we do so, we can actually plan things out together and make sure that the messaging that gets out to the public, like this poor gentleman caller who just wants to know when his mother can be vaccinated, comes out in a clear fashion, because the last thing we need right now is more confusion. Okay. Uh, Dr. Samantha Hill, I know you have to go. Thanks so much. But we will be continuing with Dr. Robert Kingstone and Dr. Anna Holland after this break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. I'm talking to Dr. Robert Kingstone and Dr. Anna Holland uh, about the fact that uh, last week the general said, gee, family docs will will get in touch with their patients. But uh, family docs have had no information, at, at least not here. We were also talking to the head of the Ontario Medical Association, who said the same thing. And uh, the longer they wait, the less time those family docs will have to talk to their patients, assuming that they will get some information. Um, it just uh, seems like a, a necessary anxiety and confusion. We'll take a call from Grace in Toronto. Hi, Grace. Oh, hello, Libby. Thank you for taking my call. I'm listening to you talking about the UK and how well they've done. And I'm from there, and I have a lot of family there. And they, uh, National Health asked for uh, volunteer retired doctors and nurses to help with uh, getting in touch with the public and the vaccination of them. And my niece's husband, who is retired, was taken up, and he's working daily to help get everybody vaccinated. I mean, I don't know why we can't do that. Uh, for retired doctors and nurses. It, it just sounds like they don't have a plan. I don't even know if, if the problem is that there aren't enough doctors and nurses to help. It's they don't they don't have they don't have a plan. And, and it sounds like they would also need more more people just working the phones. But, yeah. but anyway, Grace, I mean, I was uh, actually shocked when I heard that in the U.K., Every single person, and this was weeks ago, over 80 was contacted. Yeah. I, I found that incredible. And, um, you know, the phone seems like the best way to contact those people. Thanks for your call. Thank you, Libby. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Can I jump in here a minute? Sorry? Can I jump in here Sure. A so, <clears throat> how, there, is no, there is no reason for me to contact patients when I don't know when I'm going to have a vaccine. Exactly. How much? And what's, what's the storage and other capacities and necessities that I need to get a hold of the patients? When, when, when I and our clinic, if we're given that information, you can bet we're going to get on that as fast as we can. So, for example, uh, during the uh, flu vaccination, when it was so difficult to get a flu and people were driving uh, were driving very, uh, uh, I don't mean driving, we're, we're trying very hard to, to obtain that. Our clinic, plus two other clinics in the area, got enough uh, immunizations. So we ran a pop-up immunization clinic across the road from our office over a weekend, and we did 2,000 people. I'm not saying we can do it for the, uh, for the COVID vaccination, but we can start 
we can only start to make arrangements if we're told when we're going to have the vaccine and how much, and now we have to store it, et cetera, et cetera. Well, exactly. And um, the other thing is, remember uh, what kind of a mess there was with the flu vaccination. And, you know, that doesn't inspire huge confidence when it comes to public health rolling this out. Uh, Dr. Holland, what about you? Um, what, What are you doing going forward on this? Yeah, I think it's a really good question, and I I think in the in the fall we saw a lot of family doctors really uh, being creative and and coming up with solutions like uh, Dr. Kingstone's clinic and and others that uh, he worked with uh, to successfully vaccinate and and figure out something that will work in our uh, pandemic world. And you know, I think the important message is that. If you ask family doctors what they need and and how we can help you, we can get the job done. We just need information. When will the vaccines arrive? How are they going to arrive? What type of vaccines? The storage, as Dr. Kingstone said. And, And we have the knowledge, the skills, the infrastructure, and the relationship with our patients, which is very, very important. And if we have that information and support, we can get the job done. Okay. Uh, It's just about time to wrap up. Dr. Kingstone, 20 seconds. What would you like to leave us with? I absolutely am in agreement uh, with what Dr. Holland just said. If you give us the tools, we'll build a house. Okay. And Dr. Holland, 20 seconds. Yeah, I think... um, Thank you for inviting me today. Family doctors are eager and perfectly positioned to help, and we are waiting for that information and support. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Robert Kingstone, Dr. Anna Holland. Appreciate your time very much. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, people, um, don't call your doctor's office until we have the info. And I promise that we are st- trying to stay totally on top of this. And as soon as the information is out, uh, stay tuned here. And I will be telling you every day where this is at because I know how important it is. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.